Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be talking with Juan Magruder, a CFRE and the Vice President for Advancement at the Oglethorpe University in Georgia, USA. Juan, welcome. Thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Yeah, no, you too. And you've just got a hot cup of coffee. So we're in for a, we're going to be going the distance today. Um, so tell us about the beginning of your fundraising and development career. And what were some key lessons you learned in those early years? Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of people um, who kind of fall into development, if you will, and, and, and fundraising, I, I, um, I guess in some ways I fell into it, but it was really early. Um, so I did my undergraduate uh, degree at Clark University or Clark Atlanta University here in Atlanta. And uh, it's a historically black college, um, you know, which are HBCUs are really high on the list right now. It's just looking at the, uh, the games last night. And, um, uh, you know, this is the, the, that's here in Atlanta, the, the all-star games, and they were highlighting historically black colleges and Clark Atlanta was one that they were highlighting, but, you know, I was there back in the 80s, and uh, at the time, it was a small institution uh, called Clark College. It had not merged with Atlanta University to become Clark Atlanta University yet. And, uh, you know, during my tenure there uh, as a student, I began to get very much involved in student affairs and, uh, you know, the administration and leadership and that kind of thing. And uh, it was great to do that, but uh, once you got on the inside, you learn some things that uh, most students may not get a chance to see. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned uh, in retrospect is that uh, universities uh, or just organization in general, but certainly universities uh, could have the best mission and the be best sort of, uh, you know, uh, faculty and staff and really, you know, the best services and things like that but it's hard for them to meet their mission really without the right kind of resources. And so I noticed some of the things that were hard for us to be able to achieve as a university, even as a student, I, I saw that the lack of resources that really made a difference. And once I you know, sort of got uh, left there and went to other universities subsequently, I could do the comparative analysis. But while I was there, I thought, you know, that's something that I would like to to do so I got involved with the advancement office while I was there and um, uh, began to learn a little bit about advancement at that time even though I was a political science major um, and uh, you know I think I was headed into higher education and finding it as a career and really looking at development as one of the sort of places I plant my feet even as an undergraduate and uh, it kind of took off from there and the thing that I learned Jake is just that, that uh, these places need resources to meet their missions, um, you know, in order to do things that, especially in such a competitive market uh, that higher education is, um, 
you really need the right kind of resources then. And the only way to do that uh, is to, you know, if you have some type of windfall, which is kind of happening in a way now with some historically black colleges and universities, but really to have some sustainable ways of, 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 of floating the boat and ensuring that you have sustainable resources. And that can only come, in my opinion, uh, through private uh, resources. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I got into development and that's what I've learned. And it's been salient ever since. Wow, very interesting background story. Thank you for sharing that. And what makes you passionate about the work that you do in fundraising and development? It's impact. Yeah, it's really not about the dollars. Uh, I mean, it's wonderful to have big gifts, small gifts, um, transformational gifts, significant gifts. Um, but what's most important is watching uh, how the resources can impact a community, um, no matter what community it is. Uh, but certainly in a higher education, you know, the students benefit greatly, the faculty, you know, you're able to, to recruit the best and brightest students, you're able to educate those who, like me, who were not really prepared for college once I got there, but because, you know, uh, some resources were there, I was able to, um, you know, be, become sort of a, a diamond out of the rough, you know, um, you can attract the right kind of faculty that uh, if you have the right kind of resources um, and it can actually actually make an impact on a student's life journey as a result of their career. Um, I think I just, you know, how especially in some communities, higher education can change the trajectory of generations, you know, or even even people um, without means, you know, it can really change the trajectory of, uh, of their family outcome for generations to come. And so to me, that's what's exciting about um, uh, development and fundraising is because you garner those kinds of resources that uh, an organization did not or could not have otherwise. Uh, and then you deploy them or you see them deployed in ways that really, really make an impact, whether it's buildings on a, on a, on a, on a campus, uh, you know, facilities, uh, certainly endowment. I love, love, love seeing how endowment works and how the power of endowment and how the multiplication really that comes along with, um, with uh, increasing endowment and, and, you know, the stability that comes along with that. Those kinds of things are exciting, but ultimately it's the impact that makes me most excited about the profession. Yeah, and that's great to hear. And as I said in the introduction, you're currently the Vice President for Advancement at the Oglethorpe University in Georgia. But when you look back at your career prior to your current role, which you're still uh, just uh, new in as well, which we'll get into shortly, but what stands out as one of your most successful campaigns to be part of and what went into making this a success? Oh, wow. Um, was it successful, the most successful one? Just what you would define as the most successful? Yeah, I, I think it was my time at uh, Georgia Tech. Uh, it was, uh, I spent 13 years at Georgia Tech. And uh, Georgia Tech is a, um, is a, you know, almost like a public ivy in some ways. It's, it's not the flagship in Georgia, like the University of Georgia, but it's the technical institute. And it really, um, has transformed itself over the last past 25 years or so into a national university. I think last 
I looked, it was ranked in the top 25 of, of, uh, of international uh, universities, you know, um, and so uh, nationally it's highly ranked. It's just a strong university all the way around and has really made some strong impacts on Atlanta. But the great thing is that, um, you know, being involved in the campaign while I was there, it was, uh, I started in 2003 and in 2004, we started a, a comprehensive campaign and that campaign went for 11 and a half years. Uh, and so as over the 13 years I was there, it was, uh, you know, most, if not very much all of my career, I, we were in campaign mode, but it started off as a, as a $1 billion capital campaign. Uh, it was their third campaign in its history, um, who kind of came back to back. The first one was in 1985, but that campaign uh, started as a billion dollar capital uh, comprehensive campaign. And um, we ultimately raised, uh, I think, 1.8 billion. Uh, so we changed it to uh, about 10 years into the campaign, about, no, about seven years into the campaign, we changed it uh, to 1.5 million in term, billion in terms of the goal. Um, and we ultimately raised 1.8 billion, $300 million over the goal. Um, and I know those numbers probably sound, I mean, they are pretty big for any organization, although there are multiple billion dollar capital you know, campaigns out there these days in higher ed. But uh, being involved in it from the very beginning, from the outset, um, you know, from pre-campaign planning uh, all the way to post-campaign analysis and implementation and everything in between uh, was very phenomenal for me for a professional. And it was uh, exciting. Uh, it was, again, very, very impactful. You know, the, the campus itself transformed in terms of uh, the number of buildings and facilities we were able to either renovate or build over the course of, of those that decade or so. Um, the number of endowed professors that we were able to, uh, uh, to achieve, you know, really bringing the institution's endowment really from, you know, maybe one point plus to over $2 billion uh, doing that uh, during that campaign. Um, and we engaged over 93,000 donors. Uh, we had a huge team, so it wasn't me personally, but just being a part of a weld-oil machine that was responsible for essentially raising um, over $3 million uh, a week uh, to meet that kind of uh, uh, goal of 1.5 billion was just phenomenal. And so that was the most exciting and probably the most successful and indeed probably the most impactful um, experience, professional experience that I've ever been involved in, yeah. Oh, that sounds incredible. And having gone through that experience, do you have any advice to other organizations on how they could be more successful in creating a capitals campaign? Yeah, well, I think campaigns can be transformational for, uh, for organizations just in general. I mean, I think they, they tend to excite the donor base if done right. Uh, they tend to expand the donor pool in some major ways. They tend to uh, have the opportunity to build um, the development teams, you know, and the development programs in very strong ways over the course of a campaign and thereafter. 
Um, and then I talked about the impact that they can have on students and faculty and things like that and, and, and alumni and et cetera. So um, my best advice is that uh, organizations consider uh, campaigns as a vehicle to inspiring donor bases, but I think they should be strategic in the way that they go about them. And so, for example, you know, when I talk about that Georgia Tech campaign, it was undergirded or, you know, buttressed really by a strong uh, strategic plan by the university. And every part of the strategic plan uh, influenced the funding priorities, right? So the strategic priorities influenced the funding priorities. And those funding priorities were very clear because it was, a, it was a objectives to meet the strategic priorities of the university. And so once we connected those uh, funding priorities, um, it became sort of uh, a, a, you know, a case for support, essentially. And I would, uh, so I would, I would advise organizations to really dig deep um, to figure out what their strategic priorities are and utilize that to develop those funding priorities in the case for support. And then it can actually be fairly compelling um, if you, as you kind of market it, if you will, to the right audiences, all of your constituencies, whether they're, you know, board members or alumni or, or, or you know, grateful patients, on, you know, on the, uh, on the uh, healthcare side or whatever the constituency is, you have to make a very, very strong case for support and it should be linked, I think, to uh, strategic priorities. Yeah, and it sounded like it was set over 10 years. Do you think that's an area where organizations perhaps get it wrong, thinking too short-term rather than long-term? I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, I think it's important to, you know, I, I learned a long time ago, even when I was in high school, my best friend who was valedictorian and captain of the football team and probably the most popular with girls as well. I mean, he was just a really good guy all the way around. Um, and, uh, and he was SGA president. Uh, but I remember part of his mantra used to be, um, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? And, you know, I kept that with me as a, you know, as a high school student and have kept it with me. And now I teach my kids how important it is to plan. Um, Long-term planning is, 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 is vital, it's, it's important. Um, this plan that I was talking about for Georgia Tech was literally a 25-year strategic plan. I mean, I had never seen that before in higher ed, uh, but it was a uh, it was a well thought out from the bottom up strategic plan. So it wasn't the administration and the president saying, "Here's my vision, here's what I want to happen." You know, it was a whole year and a half or plus process of asking faculty, students, alumni, to what were their priorities and what did they want to see Georgia Tech become in the future? And how did they envision the future, not just for Georgia Tech, but Georgia Tech's place in the world, uh, given you know, technology and all the changes that are taking place in this technology revolution. And the fact of the matter is, is that it was it bubbled up to be a very, very strong plan. Um, but, the, but the thing about planning, so it was a long-term plan. Right. But the thing about planning is that and I, I think I learned this during that campaign as well, is that it's also vital to be nimble uh, along the way uh, to to open yourself up for opportunities 
that may not avail themselves have availed themselves when you were in the planning process. But if you make the pro make the planning uh, document or your whatever your planning guide is, whether it's a strategic plan in this case, nimble enough to uh, you know to react to a changing and uh, competitive market that ultimately changes all the time, right? I mean, especially during the technology, this technology revolution that we're still in in some ways. I think that um, that's really the key to it. But if you fail to plan from the very beginning, um, you and if you have limited vision, you know, if you can only think uh, about the next year or the next couple years, uh, or even the next, you know, or within this fiscal year, uh, you're limiting yourself because it's just not, uh, it's not strategic enough. And, and therefore, the, the benefit won't be as, uh, as, as beneficial, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, that might be a good lead into this question as part of that long-term strategic plan. But can you recall a time when a fundraising initiative didn't quite go to plan? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah. Um, you know, I was a part of, uh, one of the things that happened with me, I, I actually, uh, I told you I got my fundraising, uh, uh, beginning really at my alma mater at Clark, uh, Atlanta. Uh, I was ultimately invited back years later, uh, to the university by the president to be special assistant to the president. And essentially one of the things that he wanted me to do was help, um, lead a campaign, uh, or help help lead, not personally lead, but it was actually a team of us leading um, a campaign that they had already started. They were well down the road to a campaign within this campaign. And I think they had something like a $150 million goal. And it was, um, so he had admitted to me, look, Juan, I'm only going to be here for another three years. Uh, it was in confidence as president. And I was working at the National Center for Higher Education at the Council of independent colleges in DC at the time. And so I decided, yeah, I'll come back and, and, and work with you because it was a window of opportunity. He was a good friend of mine, had become a good friend. He was president when I was uh, an undergraduate there and ultimately a graduate student. And um, he ended up being on my dissertation committee when I was at Vanderbilt. So I trusted him quite a bit. And when he invited me back, I said, sure thing. But this campaign, um, was not, in retrospect, uh, well planned from the very beginning. Uh, but it was important, I think, for the president, and I agree, um, to have completed a campaign by the time he ended what was essentially a 14-year tenure. Now, they'd raised a lot of money, but he had not you know, engaged in a comprehensive campaign. Um, so I'm saying all that to say that we actually, by the end of his, those three years, we were able to showcase that we achieved $150 million. Um, and, you know, talk about all the investment that had taken place over the course of the, his tenure and certainly um, the campaign. But now that I really have been trained in and understand and have participated in effective campaigns, what I realized is that that was not a successful campaign. So what I learned is that you can actually have campaigns that meet, that seem successful, right? That they actually meet the goal of a campaign, maybe the financial goal. But the 
elements of a campaign and all that it benefits, as I talked about before, you know, you should be able to expand your donor base. You should be able to, you know, expand and, and, and sure up your development operations in very, very strong ways. You should be able to enhance your um, and leverage your, uh, your reputation in, in, in your current community, you know, your centered circles, as well as, uh, you know, places like you are, you know, across the land, if you can, or across the waters, um, you should really be able to move up in the rankings and, you know, that your reputation among academic, uh, the academic arena and things like that. Uh, none of that, well, most of that did not happen during this campaign. And so years later, probably, you know, uh, four or five years later, the institution was having financial issues and challenges, right? And had to lay off a bunch of people. Um, and so I say that now it's surviving pretty well now, doing well as an institution, but that to me was a lesson learned of a, of a unsuccessful campaign that was actually successful on paper, but it didn't really, uh, you know, have all the elements that we know now, that I understand now that campaigns can have. And so, you know, I teach a course at LaGrange College, and I've been teaching it for, I guess, about six years now in campaigns and, and, and uh, managing campaigns. And, uh, you know, I have some colleagues that you know and others who teach along in that program with me. Very, very strong program. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that campaign course, there are professionals, it's a master's program, and they are professionals from all across the country. And that's one of the things I share with them, how you can actually have um, a successful campaign in terms of the number, but, it, but unless you really do the right pre-campaign planning and put all the links in place, um, it's hard for you to really have the outcome that is most pop possible and, and indeed optimal on the back end of a campaign. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that as well. And you talk about the, the planning before a campaign, the pre-planning. Um, I mean, what goes into that process to ensure that everything's in order? Well, it's assessment, first and foremost. You know, you, you, ask, the, you ask the organization uh, some very critical questions. And most of those questions deal with, um, you know, with leadership, you know, is the leadership ready for a campaign? Can they be engaged? in strong ways. Um, you know, for example, the president, I think, should should be prepared to spend 50, at minimum of 50% of his or her time in the campaign, you know, dedicated to the campaign. Is the leadership dedicated to that? You know, do you have the right leadership in place and staffing in place, for example? That's important. Um, you, know, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, organizations go out and and pay for uh, consultants to do a feasibility study to really assess whether they're ready internally and whether external organizations are, you know, their constituencies external are ready to invest and engage in a campaign uh, to what level, you know, the amount of money and those kinds of things and really understanding that. Making that case that I talked about, case for support. And is it connected to some strategic priorities? And is it compelling enough to energize um, uh, donors to think about investing in you? And how do you, are you really able to move um, your donor base from charity to investment, you know, participating in charity? In other words, 
you know, I have donors uh, that are always going to give to the United Way, are always going to give to um, to the Salvation Army, et cetera, et cetera. Because they, you know, if I walk out of a store and I see the guy standing there with the red bucket, I'm gonna I'm gonna participate. I trust the organization, but I'm not invested in any way. I'm not, you know, interested really totally in 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 the total impact of that you know, $10 that I put in that, in that bucket. Uh, the same thing with these employee giving programs, for example, for United Way. I believe in United Way. I think United Way is strong. And in my employment, you know, I'll dedicate a certain amount of money, you know, annually to United Way because I trust them. But really, if United Way would come to me, as they do to many donors, right, and, and show a strategic plan based on a priority priorities that they have to make real impact and we sit down and talk about the need right and the and and, and what's possible with an investment then i'm going to give more than the ten dollars that i gave i'm going to give more than the you know two hundred dollars that i gave through my employee giving program and so organizations have to ask themselves are do you have the staffing capacity do you have the um the talent on board uh, to be able to implement a campaign over an extended period of time, engaging hopefully hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of donors, and then being able to steward them properly, right? Um, and so those are some of the elements that you have to, our organizations have to ask themselves at the outset. And then that goes into the planning process um, and then really to figure out whether they're actually ready for a campaign and whether they can successfully implement one. And then my last bit of advice to organizations and my students as well is that never start a campaign that you can't complete successfully. It's just, you know, it's, it's a worst case scenario, right? It's like, you know, it's like moving backwards. Yeah. Um, I, I took a lot, lot away from that answer, especially around donating versus investing. That's incredible. It's a really good way of um, analyzing before you go out and um, do the planning for a campaign. And you've said that you're involved with the, the junior achievement of Georgia for a long period of time. How did fundraising evolve over the time that you were involved there? Oh, I absolutely love my experience at junior achievement, um, junior achievement of Georgia. Um, and so um, I'll start off by saying that, uh, so I was recruited to Junior Achievement from Georgia Tech, actually. You know, it was, my, um, it was hard to leave Georgia Tech, but Junior Achievement of Georgia really made a compelling case. And I think that's kind of where uh, my answer starts. Um, junior Achievement, of, the junior achievement you know, nationally or internationally, really it's an international organization, can be found on any continent, but here in the United States, the United States Junior uh, Achievement USA um, has over 106, I think, offices, if you will, across the United States. Um, when I was being recruited, they said to me, you know, Junior Achievement of Georgia, which is not like a Junior Achievement of Chicago or, you know, it's a statewide uh, operation. Um, they said, look, you know, Junior Achievement of Georgia is sort of like the golden child of Junior Achievement USA. And I was like, oh, it's just a recruitment tool. Uh, but really, uh, two years after I got, well, no, no, six months after I got there, it just so happened that Junior Achievement International 
has a uh, you know full conference of all of its international organizations every couple of years. Well, we hosted it here in Atlanta, uh, and so Junior Achievement of Georgia was the host. And so I got a chance to meet you know my colleagues from China and from Africa and from Asia, and it was just real. I mean, well, all across Asia, but also across Europe and et cetera, uh, including plenty of my colleagues here in the United States. And uh, they were so impressed about the innovation that was taking place here in Georgia. And uh, we were creating uh, new and exciting programs that really did link the business community to the educational community in some very, very meaningful ways. And because we were able to do that, that's how it changed the resource trajectory during my tenure there. And also a little bit before my tenure and, and afterwards as well. But part of it is that it's the innovation. Uh, it was very similar to Georgia Tech, just as innovative, just as entrepreneurial in terms of its thinking and how to impact students along the way. Um, but also, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, really able to make a strong case to the business community. And so out of all the junior achievements across the United States and really international as well, uh, we raised the most money annually than any other junior achievement. We were up to about $12 million a year, which might not seem like a lot, but if you look at JAs across the country, um, that's actually, you know, we always were the number one junior achievement uh, organization, JF Georgia, in terms of uh, its resource development. And, and the other thing that I'll say I learned about that, um, Jake, is that unlike higher education, right, the seat I'm sitting in now here at Oberthorpe University, um, the, the advancement office was the only revenue source, right? Whereas in, in higher education, right, I can sit here and I, you know, I'm a, I am a revenue center, right, my, my division, but so is enrollment and admission, right? It's a revenue center because that's tuition. And well, so is athletics, right? Because it's, it has an auxiliary uh, 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 piece of the revenue pie and so on and so forth. But at Junior Achievement, every dollar raised we don't, we're not selling widgets. We're not, you know, educating students for a price, you know, no tuition associated with it. So every part of what I was doing uh, made a difference in the organization's ability to be able to meet its mission. And so that was, uh, that was exciting in some ways, very unique, if you will, to nonprofit organizations versus higher education institutions. Um, but it was exciting because we were able to, uh, you know, really, garner million dollar and half million dollar gifts from you know major corporations uh fortune 500 fortune 100 companies here in atlanta of which we have about 20 plus um as well as major foundations like you know uh, that came out of home depot and others so it it was a, an exciting four years for me yeah great oh that sounds very exciting that role and what went into the 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 approach of going to businesses and asking for these major gifts? Yeah, good point. Well, um, it's really connecting the dots. And I think, you know, it, it really worked very well such that uh, businesses typically uh, care about a few things. Uh, brand, 
you know? So if they invest in something, they think about what uh, brand, you know, how they can uh, expand their brand into new markets. Employee engagement, right? Uh, you know, if it's an organization that mirrors um, their corporate culture in terms of their uh, social responsibility, uh, then they can engage their employees in it uh, in terms of volunteerism, right? To be able to uh, show their corporate culture, uh, you know, what's important to them as an organization. So I think, you know, the brand, the employee engagement, and then the pipeline of talent is very important. And so if you think about organizations that are growing, like many of the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies here in Atlanta, they're interested in feeding that pipeline of employees because they're growing, right? And, um, and so that's important to them. Is there an opportunity for them to be able to target, um, you know, or, or cultivate a pipeline of employees coming to the, uh, coming to the organization? Uh, so you're already talking about marketing brand, right? That's a budget within an organization. You're also um, talking about uh, employee engagement and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and new uh, pipeline, that's human resources, you know, that's a pocket. And then really it's uh, thought leadership as well. And so many of those individuals, uh, C-suite level individuals at those companies were on our board. And so, you know, when we were implementing some strategic uh, direction, we would actually ask them for advice and counsel as board members. And that became, they became more invested because they gave the advice about the direction in the first place. So that's engagement at the senior level. And, uh, and so those are kind of some of the cases uh, that we were able to make. And then the last thing is really that we were able to, you know, impact the social mobility of students um, that really may not have had an opportunity to engage in the economy based on, you know, their life circumstances. And so those are all strong cases. And if you, we were able to come to them with innovative solutions that engage them and therefore uh, came investment and then stewarded them properly and it kind of worked out very well. So many of those organizations may have been charitable early on, like I said, you know, giving at a lower level. But once we made the case and, and did all these kinds of things that are important to them, they were able to begin to invest in us. In, in much broader levels, in much deeper levels, in much more long-term levels, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that's incredible to hear. And you're, you're, um, you're involved at very senior levels within the university um, or the organizations that you've worked with. So how do you get the best out of your team? Oh, wow. I love, 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 love team building. I really do. Uh, I recognize uh, that there's no way to achieve uh, some of the things that I've achieved in the past, not personally, but for, on behalf of the organization, or um, some of the ideas or uh, tasks or uh, you know, things that are in front of me now here at Oglethorpe in terms of transformation. And the bottom line is that uh, you have to build a strong team uh, with a culture that uh, is fun and innovative and, you know, and, and uh, uh, successful. And so I actually enjoy doing that, but here's what I do with my teams. This is probably most important to me. Um, 
I might be at a senior level, but I really help. Um, I always tell them that the things that matter to me most is God, family, and friends in that order. So if it's Oglethorpe or Junior Achievement or Georgia Tech, they're probably going to come forth, you know. <laughs> so um, I exercise that or I sort of, uh, you know, model that for them. In other words, if, you know, you have things with your family, and your personal life, then I want to uh, create an environment where you can actually put that first, right? And what I find tends to happen when you do that, when you give, when you hire good professionals, you respect them as professionals, you give them clear directions and clear uh, goals and things like that, and you hold them accountable in that respect, but you give them, allow them, if you will, the elasticity to do it at their pace and in the right ways and, and things that matter to them the most, the flexibility, I think you actually get more out of a team, out of an individual than you would get. And then the other thing is rewarding uh, those uh, achievements along the way uh, and creating environments where there's individual responsibility, but collective, um, collective goals, if you will, you know? Uh, so you might be responsible for the annual fund and she might be responsible for major gifts and he might be responsible for alumni relations, but our goals are collective goals and we're moving towards them as a team. They're clearly defined, uh, but so you're never in it by yourself, right? Now the performance appraisal and things like that is an individual kind of thing, but even within that, I build in collective um, successes. So if you collaborated with one of your, uh, one of, one of your coworkers or, team members to get some things done, then it's built into the performance appraisal too. So it's not always just individual performance, but it's collective responsibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And we've got a great insight into your leadership style, which is really great. And um, today you're the vice president uh, for advancement at Oglethorpe University. Um, how do you see this as an opportunity for yourself to make an impact with your skill sets on the fundraising efforts of the university? Well, number one is, is the team building piece. That's important. Um, I've, come into, um, I've come into a wonderful, really, opportunity uh, to grow a team. Uh, uh, I have a team of about nine individuals now. Uh, some of them are new and some of them are, are, are more seasoned. Um, we're going through a strategic planning process, which I talked about how important strategic planning is. And I mean a strategic plan uh, across the university. We've got a new president. And so that will likely take about a year. But from that, you know, my skill set's about taking a strategic plan and really pulling out the funding priorities around those and then engaging the faculty and the students and the alumni around those strategic priorities that they have really helped to identify um, will, will be a part of the skills and, and background and experience that I bring to the table. Um, I am, uh, we're engaged with a, a, a local consultant now called Cox Curry and Associates, really strong. They know the community very well, a uh, very strong organization. Uh, I'm working with them on staffing, for example, and assessing the development uh, advancement operation. Uh, they'll provide me some recommendations that 
you know, I'll couple their recommendations with, um, with my own background experience and the vision of the president and, uh, and the strategic priorities. And I think those are wonderful opportunities to, you know, to create something very special for Overthorpe. And the, and the idea, it really is to create, you know, a, a, a best-in-class development operation uh, in the city. And so, again, that long-term strategic planning, that long-term thinking about where we're going is where I start. Um, but I'm pulling all the pieces together um, with my own background experience. Um, and again, what I think is a very wonderful and unique opportunity to impact, uh, Atlanta, for Oglethorpe to impact Atlanta. Oh, well, it sounds very exciting. And I think it's only a couple of months um, into the new role. So it sounds like an exciting time for both you and the university. So all the best with that. In a world struck by COVID-19 right now, where should the fundraising team's focus be at this point? Yeah, um, first and foremost, I, I, I received a call recently from, uh, from a reporter at Inside Higher Education, and, and we talked about this. And one of the things that I think is probably most vital these days um, is for development operations advancement teams to, um, to really, really have a strong stewardship plan. Um, you know, the best donors for today and tomorrow are the ones that you already have, you know. And so you have to steward the ones you have properly. Um, and so I think stewardship is probably the most important thing. I think that uh, you have to think about the world and the challenges that we are faced with now and consider uh, where your organization fits in that in terms of being a cog in the wheel to help solve some of the challenges that um, the world faces and your community, our communities face, um, like areas of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. I think areas like hunger and you know, um, homelessness and, you know, just so many other things that societal challenges, right? Um, especially at a small liberal arts college where you're really trying to get your students to, you know, think clearly, uh, write effectively, uh, decide ethically, and, um, you know, exercise a keen sense of social consciousness. And so if you can organize your um, development activity around those kinds of things by engaging your faculty, your students, and your alumni around those things. I think the, the community, right, those constituents that are out there who are essentially your donors in some ways or another, whether they're don donating their time or their talent or, or, or really their treasure, um, you can inspire them because they see you as, as, as relevant, right? in terms of solving some of the challenges that are out there. And so I think if you steward the ones you have properly and you engage in those kinds of activities that are relevant to the challenges that, that, that our world faces now, I think what happens is you inspire even new donors and you're able to expand your donor pool in that way. Um, but even on the marketing and communication side, you, you, know, um, you have to uh, ensure that your reputation is around those kinds of activities that you are indeed, you know, approaching those things. If you seem like a, you know, a, a, an organization that's kind of in the past and not sort of grabbing hold of the way in which the future is going, whether it's technology or social issues or 
or other things that are important or climate change and those kinds of things, you may not be able to um, be a strong development operation. You may not be a relevant university as you move forward. And so to me, those kind of things are important. And so when I talk to my team, those are the kind of things that I think about. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, this is a time when, um, you know, the donor population may be very, um, at a standstill maybe, or just kind of cautious about the economy and things like that. Uh, the uncertainty of COVID-19 that COVID-19 brings. Um, you can see the shift in corporations and foundations and, and people of wealth shifting their resources and their thinking about where they target their resources to these social challenges, right? And so what we need to do and organizations uh, need to do is think about, again, how can you showcase that you're serious about these kinds of things because it mirrors what the donor population is thinking about. And so while they're at a standstill, I would also say to ensure that your um, infrastructure of the operations are very strong uh, because that's always going to be important. You know, some organizations have a strong infrastructure and can spend you know 90 percent of their time on the things that i talked about before but even if it's a 60 40 for some organizations that may not have the strong infrastructure i would say spend a great deal of time maybe 40 percent of your time working on that the foundation of a strong sophisticated development and uh, advancement operation uh, and that includes everything from you know processes to to staffing and things like that yeah an incredibly valuable answer there. Um, and another important initiative that you're a part of is the Black Men in Development panel with the AFP, which discusses the current fundraising climate for black male development and fundraising offices. Can you please give us an overview of um, this important initiative and the goals that you're looking to achieve? Yeah, I appreciate that. <clears throat> well, that is something I sort of fell into, believe it or not, Jay. <clears throat> I received a call from a good friend of mine who was with AADO, which is, which is the African American Development Officers, which is a, an organization that uh, uh, she founded and uh, I helped to develop along with some other colleagues uh, years ago at Georgia Tech. It, it came out of Georgia Tech. Now it's a national organization, of course. Uh, but it's a very, very strong organization. and. We um, so I got a call from uh, Birgit Burton, who is the uh, you know the, the the head of the organization. I serve as treasurer on the board, uh, but she wanted me to sort of help lead a new initiative, which you just mentioned. It's about um, men of color, essentially, uh, and to try to pull this group together. There had been bubbling up for a number of years this notion of. Um, uh, the limited number of African-American men in particular, but men of color just in general, in the development profession across the, not just across the country, you know, but across the United States. And uh, I mean, across the world. Um, and so uh, we started giving in some thought and what we did is we pulled an advisory group together of, uh, maybe about seven or eight of us that are all in the United States, but you know, really from coast to coast, from California to here in Georgia, in the South to the Northeast, et cetera. And so I chair that organization or that, uh, that initiative 
And uh, we are doing some assessment right now of what that can, can begin to turn into. And again, I think assessment is important. So we're literally assessing. We had a, um, a meeting recently, Jake, of about 200 uh, individuals. I mean, it was, you know, it says that there's a need there. Uh, we had a number of reg registrants and more than we had expected. And, uh, and we did a real assessment about what is it, you know, online while they were there about what is it that you want to see this organization become? What are the needs? You know, what do you see as needs? And so we're beginning to digest that data. And I think what we'll do is figure out uh, the, the, the mission, if you will, of, 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 the, of the initiative going forward. But I tell you what it does will include, it will include education, right? Um, you know, uh, professional development kind of stuff. It'll certainly include networking among these men of color. Um, and as importantly, and a number of other things, but, but as importantly will be a safe space uh, for these uh, men of color to uh, talk to one another and, you know, have an outlet about some of the special challenges uh, that they face in, in navigating the profession going forward, which I think is, is really unique uh, because as an African-American male in this profession um, for over 20 plus years now, maybe 25 or so, I stopped counting, but, you know, navigating this profession is not an easy task. Um, uh, when you, when it comes to diversity and, and, and equity and inclusion. So we're trying to address that. Well, it sounds incredible and very important. And it sounds like um, the goal of not just, uh, you know, providing something for men in color in just the US, but for around the world, it sounds incredibly valuable. But um, how has your involvement with the AFP in general helped to develop you as a fundraiser? Oh, I tell you, um, another strong professional development organization. You know, I've had the opportunity to uh, to serve the Greater Atlanta chapter, um, now over 500 members uh, in various capacities from, you know, the Vice President of Diversity, uh, Diversity Fellows Program that we had uh, started years, years ago uh, to Vice President of Education and, and other positions, but ultimately as President of uh, of of the uh, chapter, the Greater Atlanta chapter, had the pleasure of serving uh, as president. And throughout that process, you know, what I learned is the benefit and value of AFP International. I mean, it's just a strong organization um, and really making a real difference in pr producing and educating and networking um, professionals all across the world. And it's been, you know, it's people like Alice and others that I have been able to uh, connect with through AFP and CFRE and serving on committees, um, uh, you know, national and international committees like that, that has really made the difference in my own professional growth and development uh, by connecting with them and learning from them and gathering effective practices and being able to implement them on jobs or, or positions that I've been on over the course of my career. And it's been uh, extremely valuable and useful. And so it's the professional development part, but it's also the servant leader part that I think has probably been most valuable. So as I served in those capacities, it was about servant leadership. And, and again, assessing what are the needs of uh, the Greater Atlanta chapter, for example, right? Really doing some assessment and then turning that into programmatic efforts that really meet the needs of the membership. And that's been exciting. I see AFP International 
doing the very same thing. And I'm very proud, for example, of, you know, that we've had, um, you know, two individuals out of our chapter uh, that ultimately and will ultimately become, um, you know, president of AFP and, uh, and Charles Stevens uh, years ago. Um, and then uh, we have a president uh, uh, elect now in Birgit Burton. So that's, uh, that's exciting. And what are you next striving for in the fundraising and development profession in the next 10 years? Yeah, um, I've always defined it, Jake, as uh, leadership, you know, just opportunities to serve um, at levels that allow me to, uh, to make an impact and make a difference. And so the whole approach, and I think from the very beginning, when I think about, you know, how I started, how I started in development at Clark Atlanta was about trying to make a difference and serving and really adding that service leadership component to it as I grew over the profession. And I see that for in my future. I think there are plenty of people who I have, uh, you know, come behind and watched do things. Uh, even today, you know, I look at some of the professionals and some of my colleagues across the country and across the world even that are doing um, incredible things. and. Uh, I just want to kind of serve and help them, you know, uh, grow and develop. And I suspect that I'll be a, a beneficiary of their, of that engagement as well. And so I don't know what they, you know, I, that's one thing, you know, about my career. I, part of it is planned. The other part is, is serendipity. And that's, you know, me being willing to grow and have the elasticity and the, uh, to be able to, to kind of, allow myself to uh, to be called rather than you know always saying this is what i plan to do what i'm definitely going to do or be yeah yeah that sounds great well we are down to the final question and i just wanted to say why thank you so much for coming on fulfilled today it's been a really incredible story hearing about your experiences well, thank you thank you so what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world yeah, well, that's a hard one. I, I think it would start, I would start by saying, you know, seek to serve. Uh, seek to serve first, you know. Uh, development, fundraising, advancement, this profession, which is indeed now a profession in the discipline and, and that kind of stuff, is really about, uh, it's, a servant, it's a service profession, it really is. And so if you enter it, and you serve in it in that capacity with that kind of mindset. And then it becomes unlimited because you will enjoy the impact you will, that you're able to make organizations that you serve able to make um, through you helping to garner the resources for them to meet their mission. And so I would just say seek to serve. It's so vital. And it can be plentiful and, 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 and rewarding in your spirit if you approach it that way, you know? It's not about the dollars, it's about the impact.